Everyone, welcome. Incredibly excited to be hosting my good friend, Sid. Um, Sid is the founder and managing partner of Swift Arc Ventures. It's an early stage um, a VC fund that focuses primarily on consumer products and consumer brands. Um, I met Sid <clears throat> last year through our, our mutual friend, um, Frank, um, who's, who's truthfully, it, it's hard to describe Frank in, in words. I mean, uh, I'll let Sid try to take a stab at it, um, but Frank is also um, a managing partner uh, at Swift Arc, and I've been very impressed by both Sid, Frank, and just the entire team. Uh, how they think about the world is, is unique. Uh, they're very disciplined in their approach and how they think about uh, consumer investing. Um, they don't just think about today and tomorrow. They're thinking about uh, how yesterday evolved and how the last 50 years of consumer behaviors have evolved <clears throat> into where we are today and where we're going. And I think that past, present, future kind of thesis and modeling has been, has been phenomenal for me uh, to just learn from and observe. Um, Sid, uh, I would love for you to just take a moment, introduce yourself to the, uh, to, to the people listening and then um, and tell us a little bit more about Swift Art Ventures. Sure, happy to be with you, Fahim. Thank you for having me. And thanks for Frank. It's hard to put an introduction that is commensurate of all of his achievements, but this is what he does. He makes magic happen by connecting like-minded folks and takes a backseat when he needs to and uh, comes back into the forefront when he, when he wants. So a uh, shout out to Frank as well. Um, so, you know, our background and, and the background of the firm for him was sort of deeply entrenched in the consumer mindset and consumer investment frame. Um, a lot of us on the partnership side have done investments for a long time in consumer. The roots of the firm started out in emerging markets, which is sort of overlapping with my background. I'm originally from India, and that's where I spent my formative years. So I never had to be taught the basic fundamental consumerism or the habits that govern uh, decision-making and the philosophies around it. And so uh, after spending some time learning, I'll call uh, concepts in finance <clears throat> with, uh, with an investment bank, I spun out and started SwiftArc. And SwiftArc first phase was an emerging markets uh, public equities fund. Got pretty uh, deep and detailed with how some of these countries and economies were progressing from say, underdeveloped to being emerging to now being closer to that uh, developed status, GDP per capita and other measurement tools. And then fast forward, we, you know, as a partnership kind of got together and said, what do we know about consumer? How do we think about consumer behavior? And what is the, the best sort of investment strategy around all of that? So Frank Rasovic, who we talked about a second ago, Zohar Ziv and I co-founded the firm SwiftArc Ventures. Yeah. And SwiftArc Ventures basically takes the same, uh, I'd say pedigree on consumer investing, but channels it towards the earlier life cycle of the fund and towards the early life cycle of these companies. So as we know now, a lot of the larger conglomerates while diversified and deep in their reach are not innovating quite at the same pace um, in terms of market share, product category, et cetera. Their ability to move quickly in a, in a category is not as fast and they have traditional um, you know, supply chain restrictions that doesn't allow them to bring product live uh, in less than a year. So these newer companies that are doing a phenomenal job of taking an idea from conception to an actual prototype to an early test to, to finally scaling the product and selling it on multiple retail formats is a, is a trend that's here to stay. I say that it really began in the past 10, 15 years after the first cycle of e-commerce activity developed and now it's really taken a foothold with the millennial population driving that, that trend. So that's really the genesis of SwiftArc Ventures coming from SwiftArc Capital and our partnership. Uh, I'm very blessed to have some incredible folks on our senior leadership team. Uh, we have 
Fabian, who comes from uh, 20 years of Procter & Gamble, Chief Marketing Officer Revlon. Zohar, who is running Uggs Boots, his company, Decor Outdoors, who I know for him, you spoke to um, earlier this He's week. guy, by the way. I, I mean, he made my day yesterday. I had a phenomenal conversation with oh, him. He's incredible. And, you know, Frank, so we've got a good junior team. We've got a good executive team and a, a pretty seasoned senior staff member team as well that provides leadership and governance. So what we're trying to do, in essence, is invest in the consumer journey at multiple stages, providing leadership and, um, you know, advice to companies well in addition to capital and being a part of their success story. Yeah, awesome, All right, thank you for sharing. You know, I, I wanna spend majority of our time uh, focusing mm-hmm. on um, consumer product brands and, and, and your investment thesis, and especially COVID right now in the midst of COVID, how you guys are thinking about the framework. But I have to ask about public markets since you come from that background. Yeah. Everyone on this call is probably wondering, 26 million people in the country are unemployed. Um, GDP is getting compressed by almost 34% in Q2, yet the stock market is rallying. How does one get their head around this? And, and, and how do you, you're not providing any investment guidance, obviously, but how do you, how does one even begin to digest this? Yeah, you know, that's a loaded question that I'm going to try and summarize. Um, you know, that's <laughs> what fundamental training is. Um, you know, yeah, I think you're right. I think what we're seeing for him is an initial kind of symptomatic result. It's only been four weeks in earnest that we have been seeing the effects and the dramatic effects in the marketplace. We are seeing leading indicators, which are, I think, still symptomatic. The unemployment spike that happened in a very, very compressed time frame is unprecedented. I think there will be a return to a fair amount of normalcy in the employment numbers over time. The GDP compression, however, will take longer. And the best way to think about the equity markets, in my humble opinion, is to think of it as a reaction versus a long-term assessment of the economy and the health of companies and earnings. Because it is unfortunately, while a leading indicator of expectation, a lagging indicator of performance. Yeah. So the fixed income market, for example, is a, is a much more robust indicator of how the real economy is doing. It's three-fourth the size of the equity market. And so I'd say, we, you know, in order to not catch a falling knife, one has to maintain that, that mindset so as to not gamble. Uh, and again, to the day traders out there, more power to you. You know, we are long-term fundamentally driven thinkers. And, and so taking that, that caveat in, um, you know, I think we're in an interesting time. I think we're seeing from a data standpoint, there being renewed optimism um, in the near term, you know, with states opening up and it's anyone's um, decision and moral stance on where they stand on this. I'm ambivalent on it myself. I think we might be rushing into a couple of things, but I get the economic argument and the livelihoods affected. So I think uh, we'll see a a sort of a W-shaped recovery. I think the first U of that W will happen in a more compressed timeframe. However, we're not gonna see a recovery to the same point that we were at, say February levels. So I think we'll get to about 60% utilization back to base. And then there will be sort of a, a, unfortunately, a lagging recovery that happens over the next 12 to 18 months. That'll be driven more by fundamental economy behavior, such as the airline industry, such as food and beverage, you know, a vast number of hospitality companies that have not even reported earnings yet. So I think we're seeing a a significant equity value erosion from the market, but we still have a a fair bit of of distance to go. And again, I apologize for for being the the Debbie Downer for some of your listeners, but that's just how I think about the world. 
I think, look, I mean, I think it's all about having kind of a, a long-term view and being objective in your thinking, right? And operating with first principles because, um, you know, I think also truthfully, people just don't know where to put the capital, right? I mean, yeah. income, what are you going to do? Commodities, what are you going to do, right? Yeah. I mean, money markets, what's there? Nothing, right? Uh, especially as interest rates have dropped and inflation's on the horizon. So the safe haven feels like equity markets, right? And, and um, so, uh, no, I appreciate your POV. Uh, I know you've been spending a lot more time thinking about early stage. Um, so let's focus our energy there. Um, walk us through your investment thesis and how you're looking at uh, what, what led to uh, the origination of Swift Arc, particularly as you think about consumer brands. Why not tech? Why not any other sector? Yeah. Why consumer product brands? Um, and what your investment thesis is? Yeah, you know, we'll, uh, I'll answer that in two parts. I'll maybe answer the second part first and then sort of dive into the COVID um, uh, reaction because I think that's substantial. Um, you know, we are fundamentally consumer investors. I think there's something we've all developed a bit of a core competency in by this point. I'm a big fan of staying in your lane. I think you can have a bifurcation of those lanes over time, but your domain expertise, you know, takes uh, years to build, you know, that 10,000 hours by some measure or 25,000 by some other experts, but you become an expert in a certain number of fields. And while you can reinvent yourself in terms of where in that life cycle to participate, eventually you develop that expertise based on deep learnings that come from deep levels of activity. So that's sort of my 10,000 foot view on why consumer. Um, secondly, you know, this kind of dates back to my upbringing a little bit. When I was growing up in, uh, in an emerging market like India in the 90s, I remember fondly and, and distinctly the first multinational brand on our, uh, you know, in our neighborhood the first McDonald's, the first Domino's, and what that did for consumer behavior. And so I was able to, I think, understand consumer behavior more easily because of that. It was a fundamental part of who I was ever since I started my journey, whether it be in finance or as an entrepreneur. And so that just became more formalized as I was learning the language. While now I can speak you know, in, in debt and equity and convertible arbitrage terminology, I think the fundamental skill set was still developed right since I was a young boy. Right, so a simple example is we used to have our uh, our vegetables in the morning delivered to us by your street vendors, right? Price discovery happened on the go. You sort of were given a certain price and then you offered what you were willing to pay and, and that became your price, right? You had a cooperative dairy farming system where you had a coin and you would go to a, a rationed uh, protection, farming protection uh, agency that gave you your ration allotted uh, dairy products. So those kinds of things stuck with me. And I'm not saying that these were hard lessons, they were just important lessons, right? The first time, for example, Heinz ketchup really made it into some of these parts were when McDonald's came to India in 96, 97. I mean, that's really when this, this stuff sort of happened. So I'm a big fan of consumer behavior. I love to study it, I love to think about it. I love to go uh, you know, deep into what that psychology is. And so I think while we may diversify into consumer technology, consumer healthcare, we will fundamentally wake up in the morning trying to figure out how consumers will act and react for the foreseeable future. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, just kind of that, putting that in a, in a bucket for a second, I feel like that leads me to our next, you know, frame, which is what's going on with COVID, how we think it'll impact, um, you know, the consumer behavior and, and will it impact generational behavior for, for times to come? My answer is sort of an overarching yes. I think, some of the parallels that are drawn to folks that served you know, in, uh, in one of the wars or grew up in the Great Depression in the 30s is a little far-fetched 
our ability to adapt and the tools that which, with which we can do that is significantly different and probably enhanced. So any aftermath and effects that are felt are felt for a certain amount of time and then the, the causality leads to an effect quickly. So I think, you know, from our point of view, when Swift Arc Ventures really thought about where we are, uh, you know, as, as recently as a month ago, we decided to shift our focus to health and wellness. We decided fully well that last mile, third, fourth, fifth mile uh, beauty companies and, and companies that are, say, not the first order of Maslow's hierarchy of needs will probably not be the first frame folks will have on their minds when they're looking to engage in consumer behavior. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cleanliness is an important consideration. Consideration Hygiene is an important consideration. We had a call this morning about a company that's developing a, a UV-based cleaning mechanism that is currently being used in medical grade facilities, but bringing that to homes, right, which has never been thought of before. Yeah. Uh, I think that could be a fascinating play. There's other plays where delivery of, of essential consumer goods and wellness goods for lactating, lactating mothers that are trying to increase organic milk production. Uh, they're not able to go to all the pet, uh, excuse me, the, the grocery stores and markets. So they are looking more for online uh, options. And so validation that comes with, with those categories are important. So we have shifted our focus much more I think to reflect what we think will be the consumer behavior for the next 24 to 36 months. And I, when we forecast that there will be dramatic increase in activity in uh, health and wellness related industries. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we've seen an emergence of, we've seen an emergence of e-commerce, right? As retail, you know, I think in 2018, 2019, uh, retail uh, total sales are about uh, give and take, $5.6 trillion, right? Ecom was only about 10 to 12% of that, given uh -huh. about 560 billion. Amazon was almost 50% of that, right? But what we're seeing, so you had this like long tail problem with Ecom. Now what we're seeing is that it's starting to shift and Ecom is on the rise. And I don't know how 2020 is gonna end up looking, but walk us through your framework for evaluating deals. Um, there's what I call fundamentally speaking, e-commerce that's technically divided into two, internet retail and direct-to-consumer, yeah. right? Digital native vertical brands that have better contribution margins, et cetera. Um, kind of an Andy Dunn model with Bonobos. And on the other end, you've got traditional retailers that are trying to enter the e-com sector. So walk us through your evaluation framework for when you're looking at opportunities. What are you focusing on? What do you think? How do you evaluate that? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, and I don't know if there's a crystal ball answer for any company that is looking for pointers out, out there for that. Okay. What I've found <clears throat> for him in, in our time doing this is there are certain founders and founding teams that are organically better at one or over the other. So there are certain people that can go out and hustle and they can go to these trade shows whenever they become normalized again. They're able to get in a foot in the door in a certain number of retailers and create brand awareness that way and then further their product sales. And there are others that are able to figure out the e-commerce sales piece sooner where they figure out as you, you know, an expert in that field, uh, certainly from a performance marketing standpoint, but also from an infrastructure standpoint, they're able to take the online identity of their product, the likeness of what their brand stands for, whether it be lookalike campaigns on Facebook or other similar strategies, and then see what the penetration will be. My big advice or unsolicited, but free advice is in the first phase for founding teams to continue doubling down on what they're really good at. 
Now in the post-COVID era, there probably will be greater challenges in going to these trade shows or calling the wholesalers and developing those kind of hustle relationships, in which case I think there ought to be a greater openness to e-commerce and uh, direct to consumer sale channels. I think Amazon initially got a mixed reputation because the brand creation becomes a bit more detached. Amazon takes a fair bit of margin uptake, but also has its own control environment. And once you have a product on there, you cannot bring it back and things like that. Secondhand products become a, a real concern. To me, there's, a, there's an interesting intermediate way to bring it all together. Yep. where you have an omni-channel strategy. I think the best teams are the ones that are doing a little bit of everything and doubling and tripling down on what's working. Let data be the biggest indicator of what's working, right? And again, the efficiency model suggests that direct-to-consumer and the margin available there should be the best, but yep. it's also fiercely competitive. You need money to be able to actually activate that channel. Right. Not many people are good at generating organic press and organic... Uh, widespread notoriety. So I think the big lesson is do what you do best organically and find a way to continue doing that. Once you get to a critical mass of product penetration, then find a way to take that and bring that to other channels. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, look, paid acquisition, we, we do that for a living. For a lot of our clients, you know, it ultimately direct to consumer comes down to uh, uh, product distribution, supply chain, and uh, media distribution, right? Um, you want to own both, uh, but it starts by building a great product for your core audience. You know, I always say, <clears throat> start with the product, build a community around that product. That community becomes a cult, and then now that you have a voice, give us the give us the megaphone to help you amplify that voice. Mm -hmm. That's all performance marketing is, right? Yep. At core, it's not just about dollar in, four dollars out. It's beyond that. It's about building a brand at scale. Um, and hopefully doing so thoughtfully and efficiently and, and so on. Yeah, um, exactly. COVID has been a shocker to a lot of people because no one expected this. If you and I were talking, I mean, we talked eight weeks ago. We didn't expect this. Um, and we talked last week. We, did, we, we, we were laughing about it. It's like, man, the world has changed fundamentally for yeah. forever potentially. There could be a new world order. <clears throat> Fundraising can also change. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, you're looking at deals every day. Um, you're talking to founders every day um, in your portfolio and uh, net new um, deals that are coming in. What's that conversation like at a high level right now? How's everyone feeling? Yeah, great question, Fahim. And I think, you know, my big thought there is to not be tone deaf. I think you, you know, you have to apply the current situation to almost everything you're doing, particularly the conversations you're having. Um, you know, I'd say there are three things that come to mind right off the bat. One is, <clears throat> if you have a product offering that works in a normalized environment, there needs to be some sort of nuancing that should happen to that product category. In our case, you know, we have Swift Product Ventures and, and sort of its main outlook, which is to invest in early to growth stage companies that are in the predominantly sort of consumer function. But what we have also done is created uh, and sort of furthered something we're calling Venture Labs. And this is a smaller vehicle, as you know, and the ability to react and act fast is more sort of open-ended in this vehicle. And what we have done is we have taken the COVID impact as a natural pre-qualifier to every investment we're looking at. <clears throat> and the same thing parlays into investors that we are looking to bring in, right? The conversation say, you know, says not consumer is the best place to allocate your capital and the returns will out outsize almost anything you're doing. You know, my messaging is frankly what I believe in fundamentally. The best way to take advantage of a market correction 
is to participate not just on the public equity side, but sometimes outweigh the risk on the private and the middle market side as well. So if you spread that risk around and play each of those categories, we've learned from the 0809 Great Recession that you will probably win at every level and the output and the outsized return potential could be vastly different. So that's just fundamentally how I think seasoned investors should be thinking about participating in this, uh, in this recovery. And secondly, you know, every private company that we have been in active discussions with is very cognizant of the fact that financing markets have dried up. Mm-hmm. So what would have been otherwise a pretty robust conversation around here, the terms, take it or leave it, uh, companies are realizing that you have to sort of adapt to the now fewer folks that are involved in actually investing capital. Cash is king, so the premium put on that is also more significant. And that means that on the, you know, on the flip side, they have to correct their valuations by 20, 25%, sometimes even, even more than that. And we're seeing that across the board mm-hmm. in, in angel rounds and seed rounds and certain series A rounds, the companies that are 75, 80% done, um, oftentimes are closing their rounds now because they don't want to have those discussions. But for many companies, there's got to be a give and take. And, you know, on my, on my seat and what I try and do is be empathetic, be understanding and just not be tone deaf. If COVID is on everyone's mind and when travel restrictions will abate, when the vaccine will be developed, how life will be transformed after this is in the second, third phase of recovery, your investment thesis, your mandate, your messaging needs to be very much in sync with that. Yeah. Where yeah. to your point, it becomes a natural overlap with your thoughts on the world and your investment decisions. I think it becomes disconnected when those are divergent. Absolutely. You know, I often say <clears throat> the only constant in our world is change. Um, and so knowing, having a phase-based approach, thinking uh, whether you're an investor or founder or operator, um, knowing how to be agile on your feet, whether you're a large Fortune 500 company or an early stage company, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, Going off tangent a bit, but I think you mentioned something interesting, which is private market valuation. I know you primarily focus your energy on on early stage. Uh, Over the last 12 to 18 months, we've seen late stage companies, right, um, that ended up going public. Private market valuations were completely bloated, right? Um, And the reality kicked in when the IPO happened. Walk us through why that happens and, and, and how should early stage investors and mid-stage and late stage investors be looking at that post-COVID or even in the midst of COVID? Yeah, you know, I think there exists a great misunderstanding of what the companies are doing in terms of their life cycle and who the, who the incentive holders are at the later stage. So a great example, you know, of companies that experience significant top line revenue growth, but then from a cash flow standpoint are not succeeding are companies in sort of that you know, B2B enterprise software space, which are tremendous market participants and their top down valuation supports a lot of these ex- sort of vastly uh, extrapolated numbers. Eventually, when you do a fundamental analysis on what the earnings per share is or what the, you know, the forecast on EPS is, it comes down to reality. And there are very few Amazons in the world where you can continue building a robust delivery mechanism and occupying mindshare, delivery mindshare, infrastructure mindshare, and uh, the ability to buy organic uh, you know, food manufacturers and things like that to control the supply chain end-to-end. Most companies, unfortunately, get valued in the old school Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett mindset where your revenues are X, your cost of goods sold are Y, your gross profit is Z. 
let's start the world from that point on and eventually you come to an earnings per share that you can deliver on a quarter by quarter basis. Yeah. And I think the fundamental disconnect begins to get significantly highlighted when the public markets are given the chance to highlight them. Because for the first time, there's a synthetic market that is available to both not just go long your equity position, but also short. And that's what keeps these companies honest, yeah. right? In the private markets, for example, if you and I have an opposite view on a company, there really isn't a, a platform we can go to and, uh, and, and short that. So that synthetic availability of shorting a market, whether it be on margin or option strategies, allows for people on both sides to exist, yeah. right? We see a lot of that happening with the Teslas of the world. Yeah. Elon Musk got in trouble with that. But the fundamental reality is that if you are going to go public, you have to be available and, and strong enough to withhold and withstand that pressure because it will come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the upside in shorting the market is often greater than the upside in going long the market. And it's a particular skill set with hundreds of billions of dollars dedicated to it on, a, on an annual basis. So to me, that's a fundamental reason why that outcome occurs and, and it'll continue to occur. Very yeah. few CEOs are charismatic enough that have done enough to be able to fully offset that. Yeah. Elon has yeah. done a great job. Jeff Bezos has done a great job. A lot of our tech uh, illuminaries have done a great job. But minus that top brass, most companies eventually, eventually have to give into quarter over quarter, year over year, revenue forecasting, performance, mm -hmm. return on invested capital and earnings per share. Yeah. Hundred percent. You know, I, I I use this term often in layman's way, but I say, look, you have to be able to strategize at thirty thousand feet in the air and execute on ground zero. So yes, let's talk about moonshot projects, right? On how we're going to get to Mars. I don't know, uh, but let's make sure that we're delivering on on to to shareholders' value, right? Because ultimately, they're going to help fund the business forward. Yeah. Um, it can't just be about it's coming. 10 years from now or five years or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I use that as an example. I mean, because we talked about Tesla, but really it could be anyone, anything. Um, and you so, know, oftentimes fame, just as a caveat, this is a conversation that we're having with these founding teams and they're having it for the first time. Yeah. So we do something, you know, again, not to toot our horn or anything, but we are given forecasts from these companies based upon their revenue expectations and, you and I both know for, for a fact now that these pro forma revenue targets are seldom if ever met. Yeah. So, and it takes a humility that, that, you know, that you have to have to understand that what you're expecting based on a two year life cycle that you've had thus far cannot be basis for your next five years, but it's a cycle because they have to do that in order for firms and individuals to get engaged and excited. And what we try and do is we take that, and then we look at what their levers are and we project our own cash flows and our own revenues. And we share that with the company. Sure. Talk about an awkward conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's funny. I, I think of an example. We, you know, we, we now work with this company, but um, I had a, uh, their founder is a friend, but I was talking to them. This is like a year and a half, two years ago. And they were interested in engaging. And I'm like, I just don't see it right now. Because like, truthfully, we're selective with the clients that we take on. We don't take on just anyone. It has to make sense for both parties. And, and uh, they were like, well, we're getting a $5 CPA and we feel like we can scale to the nth degree at that level. And, and I just, I couldn't help but shake my head and say, you, you can't. Like, you can't just look at a static last six months and then predict the next 10 years of your, you know, of your business on that. Not that they were, not that they were attempting to, they wanted to do whatever they can to work with us. So it was like yeah. a nice little negotiation play. Um, but, but 
obviously we've been doing this for long enough to recognize that $5 CAC at scale just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, similarly to you, right? The, the up and to the right, the hockey stick that you're seeing, mm -hmm. uh, let's, like, let's tamper those expectations a bit more, recognizing market dynamics can change and evolve and mm -hmm. we have to spend money to make money and so on and so forth. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, as we're, as we're thinking about venture labs uh, versus venture capital, the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, I'm really interested in, in, in learning more about the venture lab side of your business. I know a lot of people uh, that have talked about, that have heard of Swift Arc, have looked at the VC side of it. But I love that you guys are not only uh, providing the capital, but helping founders also execute, uh, which, is, which is unique. Uh, and, and some have tried it before, some have done it while others haven't. So tell us a bit more about uh, the venture lab side of the business. Yeah, you know, I, I'd say it's a brainchild of, of not just me, but a several number of people on our team. Um, you know, we have a sort of an altruistic outlook on how we think about founders and founding teams. Uh, Fabian, who is one of our managing directors, who you've met, Sumit, who's on our team, uh, has been, been around the block a lot for this VC game. I think we naturally end up being a resource for a lot of these founders and companies. And when we look at providing guidance, advice, or capital to these founders and founding teams, oftentimes what we're doing is we're also then connecting them with legal resources, advertising resources, marketing resources, and, and sort of being a trusted advisor and, and resource networker for them. And instead of that being, you know, sort of a, a question, what the labs is doing for us is allowing us to deliver that to these founders, founding teams and companies as a ready available structured resource. So by having venture partners, by having operating partners that have all done this stuff before, we're sort of being an open, transparent partner and saying, look, here's our team, borrow, pull in whichever direction you'd like. And oh, by the way, we've already prepackaged some of this stuff where, you know, I know, say, you know, a great company like Lamarck or Fahim that are able to offer some of their services at, say, a marginal discount, but it gets a conversation started and or other related fields. And it's sort of a win-win because vendors and, and agencies and, and, you know, firms are looking to have more nuanced relationships. To your point, we are trying to go fewer, deeper, and more concentrated across the vertical, across the horizontal spectrum. And so I think the lab's fundamental thinking is, you know, as in a lab, you kind of get your hands dirty, right? You put on the hazmat suit and you, you get in there with the chemicals and, and whatever else you're working on. And you're not afraid to do that. You're not just providing guidance from 10,000 feet away, sort of as an overlord and saying, these are our rights. We gave you the money, so you owe us this. It's much more collaborative. It's much more interactive. And it's sort of a, you know, a counselor, mentor, advisor, networking specialist type agent relationship. And our levels of engagement can be vastly different. And again, I think it was a natural byproduct of the way the firm and the partners and our team thinks about this business. None of us, you know, pretend to be, uh, you know, venture capitalists at the, at the very heart level of things. We at the heart level are, are consumer behavior practitioners and, and examiners. We like companies we like for very organic reasons. And we dislike companies we dislike for very organic reasons. And so we're not that interested in say which other VC firms are participating. We're not really putting out press releases to say that this is a deal we missed or this is a deal we got. We love these companies, we love these founders, we care about them, we text with them, we take their calls regardless of a meeting schedule. And how do you deliver that? You just give them that honest assumption that look, you're in the lab with us, we're in the lab with you, right? Tomorrow you have a concern on your water company being too high in, in certain chemicals versus others. 
let's talk about it. We know somebody from a, a thought leadership standpoint that we can connect you with, informal conversation, let's go have it. Yeah. And yeah. I, feel, I feel like the formalized structures and setups doesn't always allow for that level of engagement. So yeah. we're having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, look, um, it's one thing to provide capital. It's another to get, you know, put on your, uh, roll up your sleeve and, and start operating together and, and providing guidance, right? I think it's a, it changes the, uh, the fundamental nature. I mean, whenever I'm supporting founders of any kind, I always say, look, here's my number. You can call me at 10 p.m. on a Friday if you need to, uh, right? Saturday morning, like things hit the fan sometimes mm -hmm. and you're not going to call your lead investor and, 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 and pick their brain on it. You need uh, someone who uh, is in there with you uh, that has empathy for the concern and the problem that you have and can can work this out. So yep. uh, no, I, I appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit about deal evaluation process. Mm -hmm. um, every VC fund looks at it differently. They have different timelines, different kind of uh, framework of thinking. Walk us through yours. Yeah, I think it's, it's again, a very case by case basis. I'll tell you what we do observe as a unanimous principle is uh, we, we offer integrity and transparency in the process. Like, you know, I mentioned earlier, we're not trying to pose as hard-nosed venture capitalists. We have a process and yes, we have a fully thought out, fleshed out systemic process. But I think at every level, the idea is to keep everybody engaged and posted. Um, what we also try and do is not let an overview deck or a number dictate the narrative. I think a unique proposition that every company and every founder offers is, it's, is their story, right? Uh, she has done th certain things before. She has been to uh, certain, you know, mountains and, and climbed those mountains and reached certain uh, stages there. And that's when they develop some of these products and understanding that motivator, appropriately valuing it, and then removing that bias in the deal flow evaluation is what we try and do. So yeah. we've got something called an investment qualifier at the first stage where every company is put through the same ringer. It's given objective points and marks on all things, fundamental, financial, market penetration, network effect. The second phase is we give it points based upon its actual fundamental proficiency. And then we decide whether to engage in what we call the final levels of diligence. Eventually that gets to an investment committee where the investment committee that has over hundred years of experience, uh, both, you know, one has been a public company chief operating officer and a chief financial officer. One has taken multiple companies public on a Frank, Zohar, myself, you know, we have different skill sets. So when we have these discussions, they're, they're elevated in nature, right? Zohar may consider a point around operating margins that is important, yet we may not have thought about. Frank may consider an entrepreneurial aspect that we haven't considered. I may think about a financial instrument or a financial markets related development that we haven't thought about. But the idea is to, number one, identify things that work, run it through a streamlined process. Number two, appropriately value fundamental performance without personal biases. And number three, put it through a human ringer, where the human ringer oftentimes leads to one of the partners engaging even more deeply. Yeah. By that time, the partners have developed a deep relationship with these founders. We have developed an empathy for their journey. We've developed an understanding of it. And typically the solution we provide isn't just a term sheet with an equity financing and evaluation. It provides a host of solution-based thoughts on what a board advisor should look like what kinds of folks we can bring to the table. So it sort of ends up being a holistic, involved win-win outcome. I love that. No, I appreciate that thought process. I guess a, a follow-up to that would be <clears throat> what, from a B side, right? When we look at a tech journey, uh, a really 
typically you see five to seven to 10 year horizon for uh, from really seed stage to uh, whatever the desired outcome is, uh, some form of a liquidation event. Um, direct to consumer and, and consumer product brands are, I, I personally think that they operate on a completely different life cycle, right? It can be 15, 20 years horizon. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think about tampering LP expectation in this world versus what everyone's used to? When we think about VC, we think about uh, a, 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 someone that's investing in a high tech uh, or a, a high growth opportunity Mm -hmm. consumer product brands just take a longer time, right? To build, to nurture, to evolve, to, or to get to a point where it makes sense. And they may still not reach the potential of like a typical, like a Facebook or a Google or a Dropbox, right? So walk us through a typical timeline horizon. How are you thinking about um, D2C and, and consumer product brands? Yeah, you know, you're right. Fundamentally, I think consumer investing is different and, and is based on different levers than pure technology investments and high-tech, as you put it, whether it's B2B or B2C, enterprise level or direct-to-consumer. And I think that there are a couple of fundamental differences. When you invest in a consumer-based investment platform, you are investing in a more defensive outlook, which may not have the same upside, but certainly doesn't have the same downside. So it's sticky because consumer behavior takes a bit longer to unravel, and so is a bit more sticky even in downturns. Right. It's unsurprising that while we may not be capturing all the alpha all the time, consumer behavior takes longer to form to your point, but then also consequently longer to unfold. So I think in a diversified world, there's an allocation for both. But fundamentally, that's sort of a first principle. Right. And there's no dodging it. There's no trickery. There are no gimmicks there. It's a very straightforward thing where consumer companies get typically a multiple on top line revenue at a mature stage of two and a half X. Right, which ends up being a, a range on their cash flow basis. That's how these companies get acquired. The goal is to have enough companies that we think are relevant to the Procter and Gambles, to the Unilevers, to the Tysons, to the other brands, that we become these companies become interesting acquisition targets. Because remember that unlike in technology, in consumer, you have a vast number of potential acquirers, and what they're acquiring is not just your company and your modus operandi. It's what could these users also be doing in terms of their consumer behavior? How can we sell other products to these consumers? Oftentimes, how can we get into the thought leadership in this demographic? So I think that the, the motivations of even that, those outcomes that we talk about are different. There is a bit of an art and science intersection between those two. I think you could be stuck with a lot of uh, companies and consumers that are going nowhere. Uh, and consequently, you can have an average to underperforming return profile. Yeah. On the flip side, if you identify as a certain few pockets that you're good at, you can have a consequently much better impact. So yeah. one of the things that helps me and helps our team is we keep an ear to the ground, both at the basement level where companies are starting out and on the top floors and the upper echelons of the, the corporate side of things, where we know that some of these behemoths are looking for innovative companies in certain spaces. It's a privileged position because we know that there's a fine line we're walking between those two opposites, but it helps us. So by default, when we are talking to folks uh, at both levels, we're able to merge interests accordingly. Yeah. And in, in doing our due diligence, we have thankfully, you know, on our thought leadership bench, enough folks that represent that, that upper paradigm as well, where a quick conversation will tell us if this is a sticky or not sticky product. Yeah. And then, you know, we have, the likes of our investment team that has done things like launch products before 
The first time Fabian and I met was at a consumer conference when I talked about my uh, fundamental philosophies Fabian presented about launching detergents and laundry based products in different countries. So, you know, I think it, we're, we're an interesting bunch. Yeah, <laughs> that's an exciting conversation, man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we can talk laundry detergents all day with Fabian. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, I think, I think that's great. You know, I want to shift the conversation, the back half of this conversation to founders, right? So we've been talking a lot about your vision, um, investing thesis, framework, et cetera. Let's talk about the founders, right? So um, how should a founder be prepping to fundraise, uh, not just with SwiftArk, but just going to market and, and, and exploring opportunities? What advice would you have for an early stage founder? Yeah, um, Zohar and I talk about the first one a lot. It was probably my second or third, but it's now my first. Um, coachability. Yeah. I think what you have in a founder's mindset is that alpha personality, where they have been able to break very many traditional molds to be able to get to that point where they are looking to launch something. That level of active thought and deliberate action also leads to, I would say, a small amount of hubris in, in that you feel like you know a lot. And remember that for all of the things you have learned over the past year or two or three or four, there are folks on the other end that have been doing it for 30, right? So maintaining that learning mindset, the humility that people are looking at you as a coachable person or not, right? So don't lose a coachability, solicit feedback at every level because there are people in the right setting in the right rooms. There are people that have done this or similar things and their valuable advice is, believe it or not, the difference maker many times. So coachability is number one. I think number two is thoughtfulness around product category, right? If you spend most of your waking hours thinking about a space, you should have arguably developed some level of research, some level of proficiency around who the players are, you know, do your homework, right? So if you're gonna pitch us a water company, tell me who the water competitors are. If you're gonna pitch us a beauty and wellness company, a swimwear company, whatever your particular chosen area field might be, spend the time not just being so inward and micro-focused that you lose sight of there being a competitor that's doing the same stuff that eliminates your chance of success. So I think, you know, having that visibility of not just staying in your tunnel, but looking around and catching up with what's happening around you is important. And the third, I think, is an uncompromising one for us is integrity. Yeah. Right. It maybe overlaps, you know, because skills can be taught. Networks can be brought to the table. Capital can be raised. But if you showed to us that you are coachable, you have done a baseline level of homework and you have spent the time doing research and the difference is light night and day, right? Yeah. And the third is you are presenting what you know with integrity because we follow you know, very many, what we think of Aristotle methods, right? Instead of doing it deliberately, we do it in conversation. Mm-hmm. We'll ask the same question four or five times, right? We'll ask it in intervals of four or five weeks. If the consistency of the answer changes, well, trust me, you will forget that you are consistent to change, but we will remember yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? because we're making a note of it. And so if you're honest about it and you just say, look, I don't have that piece figured out. I don't have the answer, but I'd be curious to hear if there is an answer and what that answer might look like. That's fine. You're not expected to be a, you know, a walking encyclopedia on everything. I think that human virtues get forgotten. And you know, I can talk about go to market, this, that, and the other, but eventually I think skills can be acquired core values are difficult to replicate. So we are investing in those three for our, our point of view. 
I love that. You know, when I look at some of the best founders that I've been able to, to come across and work with, um, you know, commonality in terms of skill set that I see is their ability to just strategically think about yesterday, today, and tomorrow, uh, and also a year, two years out, right? So to your point, like having a, a thesis, a POV, um, a founder should never lose that and they should have one. Um, their ability to fundraise, number two, right? And then number uh -huh. three, their ability to put the right people in the right seats at the right time. So team yeah. build out. Um, so let's focus our energy on the third bullet, right? Uh, which is team build out. So you can have a, uh, you know, I, we often hear in the world of entrepreneurship um, is the rock star, right? That entrepreneur is a rock star. And I've just come to believe that the best entrepreneurs are actually not rock stars. They are uh, mentors, they're coaches, they are leaders. Leaders are not rock stars. Uh, leaders let their teammates become rock stars, um, right? So walk us through when you're talking to some of the best founders, what are some of the core kind of abilities have you seen their, 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 their sheer ability to build out a team? What do they, what do they do so well that they're able to recruit um, at a certain level? Yeah, I think they have a, a great question for him. And, you know, I, I will say that I've been privileged to learn this lesson from a lot of my mentors over the years. And that's been a, a big blessing to me because it's truncated or compressed the time in which I've been able to apply these lessons. I have a great mentor out of Nashville, Fred, who's taught me uh, the value of investing in teams and certainly Frank and others. So I say this with the caveat that made plenty of mistakes along the way, but learned, learned from them. Um, I think it's that scarcity mindset, right? No matter how successful you think you are, never lose that. Never lose a scarcity mindset that comes to team building as well. If you are trying to figure out a world or estimate a world where you are paying your entire team top dollar and that's what's going to keep them motivated, you are already, I think, in the losers category from that point of view. Right. The best leaders, founders, partners are the ones that are able to continue motivating their team and uniting them over a vision that hasn't even happened yet, yeah. right? That you, the vision becomes reality one step at a time and with their help. So there's a chicken and egg situation where you almost are saying that, look, we're going to go out and be this tomorrow, but today I need your help. If you believe it in your gut, you're not willing to fail. People are attracted to that energy. Yeah. Now, I used to think that the best founding teams start with charismatic leaders. I have learned over time that people that are not outwardly charismatic have other abilities. They are able to hire charismatic people. And so I, I strongly believe that uniting people behind your vision and truly uniting them, spend the extra hour with them when you're not talking about deliverables, work, equity shares, all of that stuff, options, vesting, all that stuff that consumes companies and founding teams that haven't even built anything yet, right? Grab a cup of coffee, get on the phone, just talk, spend time, right? Spend time getting to know each other at an individual level. Do not lose that because yeah. that I think ultimately is your glue, right? So eventually understand the importance that there can be only one or two centers of anything, right? Be that center that attracts that energy. But in order to continue to sustain that energy, have a unified vision behind which everyone can rally. I always say that there's a professional goal, there's a personal goal. If those two are not parallel, neither will work. Yeah. So I've had this conversation in an ASIN form with some of our team members. I've learned a lot about personalities. Personalities are like children. They have to be handled individually, right? Yeah. You have to be mentored, garnered, and, and nurtured individually. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. In the first quantum you know, quarter, semester, whatever you want to call it, one-on-one -on -one relationships matter. You know, how their kids are doing in school matters. 
how their wives doing matters, how their girlfriends are. Just don't lose that human connection. While while, while I think we're all busy doing what we do, we take yeah. that for granted. No, I love that, and thank you for sharing. I think that's been you know when I think about building a great business, I think about um, you know I think about people, and uh, typically any business has three levers that they can pull. Right there's uh, a, a capital lever, there's a technology lever, and then there's a people lever. And I think often you realize that it really truly comes down to all three at once, but uh, it's the people. Some of the best businesses that have ever been built have been because of good people that have been part of that business. Um, and it's more than just the business, it's the people to people connection that, that makes it. Because at the end of the day, there's no DTC or B2B, there's, it's, it's people to people. That's what this is all about. Um, so I appreciate that. Uh, I know we have nine minutes. I'd love to, I know we have two questions, um, two good ones. Um, I'd love, love to dive, dive into those, Sid, if that's okay. Sure. Let's do it. Johnny, I'll, uh, I'll pass the mic to you. Yeah, great. Uh, so we had a qu uh, question in from John, um, and he said, over the last decade, many consumer startups have looked into China for supply chain scale and cost efficiencies. Given the likely strain in the U.S.-China relationship due to COVID-19, how should consumer startups prepare given the greatly exacerbated policy risks? That's a good question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, I think the, the beginnings of that began even before COVID. I think what got highlighted in the first part of this year, pre-COVID, even January and February, were the trade wars that between India and China, excuse me, between China and the US, and then you saw India, the US, there were lots of countries that were being affected. I think we will see a deconcentration towards China, and I'm not trying to be uh, a nationalist or an internationalist on that. I think that would just generally be a basket approach to having your backend supply chain risk as well as your manufacturing risk. I think that's a good thing. I think there are terrific manufacturing facilities out in Vietnam and in other countries that are just as good. I think as a founder and a founding team, having an open mind is critical. Um, I think China has for not just been a high volume producer for a long time, but also been a, a leading innovative producer of things and manufacturer. So I think from that standpoint, it'll have to be a deliberate uh, policy change internally and, and externally. And two, I think be willing to pay, you know, 12 uh, basis point increase on, on deconcentrating. It might affect the margin in the near term, but if you tell the manufacturer that your role and your goal is to expand the relationship over time, and this is only the first run and the second and third and fourth runs will come with greater quantities, developing that relationship with them early will help. So I foresee, to answer that question succinctly, there to be number one, a deconcentration of manufacturing and production from China to other parts, uh, you know, namely India, Vietnam, Philippines, and parts of Bangladesh. Number two, I find that uh, prices will get more competitive from a raw materials and sourcing standpoint, which has been a concern. And number three, I think there will be a deliberate macro level sea change that will make it easier for folks to work with 3PLs and buying houses and buying agents to facilitate these changes. Absolutely. Well said. Johnny. And the then, uh, another question from Mike. Um, and he asked, what industries do you think won't survive COVID? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> I think the question is, uh, let, let's do it this way. What do you think is going to be disrupted? Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's, a go there's going to be a fair bit of consolidation. I think there will be fewer airlines to end the year than there were to start the year. It's a bold statement because of the infrastructure that airlines need to stay alive is robust. Uh, but I think there'll be M&A activity, there'll be bankruptcies and 
Regrettably, there will be a fewer number of airline operators, which ultimately is a negative for consumers because it, you know, in, in terms of competition and price points. And number two, I think energy, we have seen what may be on record, one of the largest, longest bull market runs of our generation that typically is a cleansing that happens every six to seven years. We saw a near, you know, 12 year bull run here. And so energy and infrastructure has unfortunately uh, been riding the cocktails of, of increased demand and availability of supply. And I think as companies are shifting their focus on renewable and other sources, I think energy will be deeply impacted and we may see as much as 20% of uh, producers and even storage facilities not exist by the end of the year, which could be a function of both a business use case, but also a, a, a market in, a reduction in the price of oil that I don't think will change anytime soon. Interesting. Um, Sid, on, on the note of, of uh, exp coming together, right? So when we think about uh, M&A activity, um, you know, I've, I've, I've openly spoken about this. A lot of e-commerce clients that we work with, and just broadly speaking, what I'm seeing in the ecosystem is they, it feels like they're defying gravity. Like you, every, everyone's hurting, but a lot of e-commerce companies are doing well. So in the, in the spirit of talking about M&A, I'm expecting mid-market M&A to spike uh, post-COVID, right? When uh, traditional retailers are looking to hedge um, against these um, black swan events. Uh, what's your POV on that? Yeah, I think healthcare delivery and consumer goods will be two areas of activity. In talking with bankers that represent some of these firms and you know folks that are engaged in the facilitating that buying and selling, we have already seen an uptick in yeah. interesting conversations. On the other hand, there's also interesting acquisition targets on e-commerce that are not doing as well because their uh, modes have been affected, but they have a good product, they have a good uh, backend supply chain fulfillment delivery system. And so those product categories plugged in with otherwise successful Amazon and e-commerce platforms could be a better basket opportunity. So we're seeing both uh, within the consumer, we're seeing some of that in beauty and wellness, but I think a, a large part is coming through healthcare delivery. So consumer health and basic consumer goods. So your non-discretionary consumer goods that have really spiked in the past three to four weeks. So we're yeah. seeing that. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm certainly expecting the next 24 to 36 months to be incredibly interesting, not just to observe consumer behavior, but certainly as we think about uh, you know, some of the most resilient founders are going to be building their businesses now because there is a pool of talent that's ready to work. Um, and they're, they're intelligent people, they're smart people and hardworking that are, that are going to want to build something. And then on this end, uh, M&A activity coming out, coming out of COVID because there are going to be large retailers that are looking to tap into, to your point earlier, the thought leadership, that, that demographic that these uh, sort of mid-stage direct-to-consumer brands are, are really servicing. Um, and to tap into that and then, you know, get them tapped into their supply chain distribution while they tap into the demographic and play the LTV game, um, yep. you know, get them sold all the different products that are in their inventory. Um, I think, you know, to that point for him as well, it takes, there's, a, there's no exact science, but my view is it takes 30 days to build a new habit, mm -hmm. right? It takes multiple new habits to build a culture. Yeah. So if you can somehow build a view on that in advance. Uh, and for the few that are that are with us, I think that's something to think about, right? As the world changes and the paradigm shifts, whether it be on the business side, professional or personal, what are things that we can do for the next 30 days uh, that will eventually lead to a cultural change? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sid, 
Thank you, man. Uh, this is wonderful. I feel like this is our, our coffee chat um, that we normally would have in person, but it's on Zoom and I'm, I'm so glad that people were able to dial in. Um, super grateful for your time. I know you're busy um, and thanks to Frank for bringing us together and Zohar and everyone else that's on your team. Um, I'm just, I continue to be impressed by the work you guys are doing. So keep at it. Thanks for jumping on and thank you to everyone that was listening in um, and uh, we'll chat soon. Thank you, Fam. Enjoyed it. I said.